This is Our American Stories. When you hear that music, it's time for our final thought segment. And we do that about people who are about to die, eulogies, and death's a part of life. And sometimes we got to go there. And today we have a contributor reading his article entitled, How My Father's Cancer Diagnosis Saved Our Rocky Relationship. And the writing comes from Willie Lynch of Cambridge, Massachusetts, a scientist and a university administrator. He wrote this piece for his wife's best friend that had lost her husband to cancer. As he sat thinking of what his wife's friend was going through, he thought of what his own mother went through when his father died. When he thought of his friend's kids, he remembered what it was like when he lost his dad. He wrote it down and sent it to the Boston Globe, and when they accepted it, he sent the check they gave him to his wife's best friend. When Reader's Digest published it, he sent her that money too. Here is Willie reading the story. Nothing stays the same for long. Things and people change, often for the worse it seems, but once in a while, very much for the better. I grew up on a small farm, living a life that I took for granted. I had a dog without a leash, mountains in whatever direction I looked, and awoke to the call of pheasants in the alfalfa fields. My father also worked in the city as a welder. He was quiet, distant you might say. He was not highly educated, but smart, with an engineer's way of looking at problems. He was a man made of leather, brass, and chewing tobacco who tried to teach my brother and me useful things, including respect. He had a temper. I did not like him very much. One day I came home from school and his car was already there. Once inside, I was told by my mother that he didn't feel well. His back hurt. My father never missed work. In fact, when he came home, he went to the barn to work even more. I remember peeking around the corner at him as he lay on his bed in the middle of the day. I was in elementary school. Multiple myeloma is a type of blood cancer. It starts in the cells that normally make antibodies for the body to use in its immune response against infections. When those cells become malignant, they make antibodies like crazy. As the cancer grows, the person who has it shrinks. The disease saps the body's energy and the antibodies cause problems for other cells and tissues. Bones eventually look like Swiss cheese, and when they break, they never heal. For the last year of his life, my father's entire day consisted of rising from his hospital bed in the living room and slowly walking to his chair to sit and think. He was predictably in that chair when I came home one day during the ninth grade. 
I do not remember where my mother and brother were, but the two of us were alone. He asked me to sit down. What followed still moves me these decades later. He told me about his life, his family growing up, what it was like in the Pacific during World War II, his loves, his heartbreaks. It was like a pipe had burst, his inner self rushing out to me in a great flood. He had been speaking for maybe an hour or more when I realized that he was doing more than telling. He was asking to be forgiven. All it took was that understanding within me and I forgave everything immediately. When he died, I didn't return to school for a few days. My biggest dread coming back was gym class. It was poorly supervised and bullies ran the show. True to form, on my first day, I was standing there in my shorts when an all too familiar voice bellowed, Lynch. It was a guy who had given many of us a few lumps over the years. I turned to face him and said, what do you want? The other boys didn't say a word as they waited for the beatdown. I heard your dad died, he said. Is that true? I quietly replied, yes. He didn't punch me. He didn't even move. Instead, he said, I'm sorry. I was shocked. I'm sure I cried. Those two words are how I have remembered that kid ever since. What do you do when your enemies reveal that they are also human? I think you either forgive and move forward or hold on to resentment and live in the past. I'm certainly not glad that my father got sick, but at the same time, I realized that if he hadn't, I might never have come to love him. It's the darndest thing. It is the darndest thing, and thank you, Willie, for those words, for sharing. And this originally appeared in the Boston Globe. This piece made its way to the Reader's Digest, and it's making its way to you. And we'd love to hear your final thoughts about your loved ones. Go to ouramericannetwork.org. Willie Lynch's story, in a way, his dad's story, and that bully's story, here on Our American Stories.
And we continue with our American stories. And every once in a while, we love to bring you great speeches. And today's is from a guy named Mike Matheny, who had a successful career as a major league catcher. And at the age of 41, with no professional coaching experience, was named the manager of the St. Louis Cardinals. He led them into the playoffs in all of his first four years, setting a Major League Baseball record. Matheny's speech was to the students at the Oxbridge Academy in Palm Beach, Florida, and it was done right before his move to managing the Kansas City Royals. Here's Mike. I I was a very average player. I I wasn't actually that good, which made it even more special to me that I was able to stick around in the Major Leagues as long as I did, because I wasn't all that talented, but I figured out what I was good at and tried to figure out how that could help me and, and help my team. But... One thing, I've got this little twisted, sick part of my mind that, that I actually enjoy some of the anger and frustration and all the venting that people do in the stands, all the heckling. And it gets pretty nasty in some cities like New York and Boston and Philly and actually up in Chicago. And I don't know if any of you have ever been to Wrigley Field in Chicago, but it, it's a really cool atmosphere. You need to put that on your bucket list if you're a baseball fan. We were in Wrigley and it was a day game. And I decided I wanted to go out and let the fans kind of have their say at me and see what they would come up with, see if we could get anything original. And so I took off my, the sweatshirt I had and had my name across the back. And so I go out and, and, and I go to the right center field where I see none of the other people are standing, none of our guys were standing during batting practice. And I, I turn around to where they could see my name. And sure enough, there was one voice. I knew this guy had something good for me. So he starts laying into me and I think it's me but he's, he's yelling this, he's yelling, hey, Matheny. And just to make that clear, that's not how you say my name. Alex got it right, it's Matheny. But that shows you the kind of career I had where this guy had no idea even how to say my name, but he keeps yelling at this Matheny guy, hey, Matheny, you stink, hey, Matheny, this and that. And he starts getting a little belligerent. I realize he's about 14 beers into his breakfast. And I'm about to walk away because you can only hear you stink so many times. And I've heard it in multiple languages. But then he yells, hey, Matheny. And and he stopped me this time because it was something I'd never heard before. He said, hey, Matheny, you even stink on my video game. And I stopped and I'm like, man, that's original. If nothing else, that's original. So I turn around and I tip my cap and I look over and our pitchers in right field are just like bowling over laughing. And I'm like, it wasn't that funny, you know? And so there must be obviously some truth to this, not a video game or so. We finish the game, fly home. I I have the rare privilege of sitting down and having dinner with my wife and our five kids because it was a day game. I get home and we go through all the nonsense that have been going on at home. And then we start talking about, you know, things that happened to me and I tell this story. And so I'm telling the story and my wife starts laughing way harder than she should have also. And while I'm telling the story, I lock eyes with my oldest son, who's just a little guy at the time. And, And the whole time I'm telling this story, He's kind of turning his head, you know, like that confused dog look. And while I'm telling the story, I'm thinking, you know what? I'll bet this little fella's thinking, why would a grown man show up and start yelling at another grown man just for doing his job? That makes no sense. And so I finished telling the story and I go, hey, buddy, I go, I go don't worry about it. Don't worry about that. I mean, people, they come, they just air their frustrations. They, they think it's funny. Sometimes they're just angry, but it's not that big a deal. And he stops me. He said, no. He goes, no, I've I've been at the games and I've heard them yell that stuff at you before. He goes, I just hate it. He goes, I hate that I can't even play you on my video game because you stink on my video game too. (laughs) 
That's the kind of career I had. I was able to go play in college, which was an incredible experience. I played at a, at a very good school at the University of Michigan where I met, met my smoking hot wife of five kids, and we were able to, to start a family of five. We have three grandchildren on the way. Those are the things I'm most proud of. Um, yeah. So I got to play, but then I found out what my true calling was and what I truly love. I love coaching. I love teaching. And it makes no sense playing for uh, 17 years. Uh, I, I love coaching more than even the playing. And it doesn't make sense even when I say it out loud. It sounds stupid. But I want to tell you it's the truth. And, and part of me being up here today is just another opportunity to coach and to teach. And like I said, I don't know where you are right now in your, in your own individual walk, things that you're dreaming, things that you're hoping for for yourself. Because I want to tell you this, there's going to be a whole lot of people that are going to tell you you can't do it. Twelve years old, I decided at that point, I played all sports, but I decided at that point that baseball was kind of my gig, right? So found out I was a little bit better at that. So I put my chips in. I want to be a baseball player. I want to play at a major university. You know what? I want to play in the big leagues. I want to play in the major leagues. So I go to a camp. We're sitting out on this field, and it's hot, hot. And you're on this turf, and I remember my butt was burning. It was so hot, but they had a college coach coming in. And that's like that next step I wanted to take. So they had my attention. I'm listening to this college coach. This guy comes in. And it's 100 degrees outside. I don't know how hot it is on that turf, but this man walks in in a full sweatsuit. Bright red, bright red sweatsuit. I mean, the long jacket on and everything. I'm thinking this guy's gonna sweat to death. And he stands up there and he's flapping his arms. He's a really large man and he's throwing sweat all over the place. And, and, and he said something I'm never gonna forget. He said, you guys realize you have a better chance of winning the lottery than making it to the big leagues? Statistically speaking, you have a better chance of winning the lottery than making it to the big leagues. And I remember, you know what? I was taught to respect my coaches, and I had deep respect for this guy, but you know what? Wh who is he? Who is he to tell me that I can't achieve my dream? Who, who is he to, to throw some stat at me? Somebody's got to make it, right? I understand odds. But, but guess what? Why should this guy have a say in what my future looks like? And I used that. And you know what? There were times where that crept into my head where I had some doubt, like, why are you even trying to do this anyhow? Why are you sacrificing some of the things that are fun so you can reach this dream when, when it's probably not a, a reachable anyhow? But man, that's a lie. And I want to tell you guys, too, I, I think it's a good time right now where you are to start that thought process. What's your vision? What's your dream? And so then once you have that in place, I think it's, it's time to get busy. If you truly want to achieve that dream, what are you willing to do to get there? And so those are the things I'm going to talk to you about real quick. For us, we look for a competitive edge in baseball. Just some, something that's going to get, give us just a chance to, to, yeah, get to our dreams, but also just excellence, always looking for how, how, can I, how can I get that advantage on somebody else? So came up with this acrostic, and it's E-D-G-E-S, edges. And so I'm going to walk through a few of these because I believe these are things that we can control these are things that I believe will create a competitive edge no matter what we do, whether it's in a locker room, whether it's in a classroom, or whether it's in a boardroom. I think it covers all of these. First one, an educational mindset. And I'm not just saying that because we're in school, because I think this is more 
than just the formal education. I believe it's the mindset. And there's a, a great book by a professor out of Stanford, Carol Dweck, that says, the book's called Mindset. And what it talks about is a growth mindset versus a fixed mindset. And this growth mindset's really not just, hey, I'm gonna work really hard in school. It's I am never turning off my mind to learning, never. No matter what, I am going to keep learning and growing. And when you see this in person, it stands out and is different. I'll give you an example. I had a coach, his name was Mr. George Kissel, and George was almost 80 years old. And most of you think that someone at 80 is completely irrelevant and, and, and in that they just aren't up to speed when they get older. I want to tell you, this guy was unbelievable. He was one of the most baseball smart people I've ever been around in my life, and I knew of his reputation. And, and so when I had the chance to be around him, the very first time, I just got released twice by two very bad teams. Sit down to watch a game and, and this gentleman sits down next to me and he starts hammering me with questions, one right after the other. And I'm like, man, nobody told me about the pop quiz. And then all of a sudden I looked into his eyes and I realized what he was doing. This guy was not trying to test me this guy who'd been around the game and some of the greatest in the history of our game was coming to some snot-nosed punk that wasn't very good looking for one little nugget of, of wisdom. Just something. An 80-year-old man who'd been around the game for 60 years teaching some of the Hall of Famers was looking from some, he didn't even really know my name. He, he was just asking like, what, what did you hear about this? Or what do you know about that? Or when you were in another organization, this guy had that mindset, a growth mindset that constantly wanted to put the throttle down on getting better at 80 years old. It's not something we can turn off. And I want to challenge you guys, right now it seems like that's all you're doing is learning, or at least you're being educated. And, and, and once, it's, once it flips and it becomes real and it becomes personal, it's amazing how the world opens up when you get that in your mind. How, how can I go out and, and what I'm doing today, how can I get better from it? And when we come back, we'll continue with Mike Matheny's speech. And it's about a lot of things, and you'll want to hear more. Mike Matheny's story here on Our American Story. We continue with our American stories and Major League Manager Mike Matheny's speech to the students of the Oxbridge Academy. And what's so interesting about the speeches we highlight is in the end, they're just stories. Stories about generally the person who's speaking life and what they've learned about life. Mike is sharing how to have a competitive edge through the acronym EDGES. And we return to him on E for Educational Mindset. There's a coach I'm working with in Kansas City. He's been working for, for 42 years in the organization. We go out and we watch a game of all these minor league players, and he's writing like a crazed man. I mean, just writing, 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 writing. I'm like, man, what are you doing? We were all taking notes, but not like this guy. And he says this. He says, every day I come out here, I'm looking to learn 10 new things that I've never seen before. 42 years in the game, 
and he's looking to find 10 new things that he's never seen before. Do you know what kind of coach this guy is? You can guess, right? I mean, it's impressive because there's something inside. And my encouragement to you is, are we going through the motions or are we truly trying to learn? And guys, I want to challenge you, no matter how old you get, no matter how much success you have, no matter how many accomplishments or even letters behind your name through education, never take your eyes off of learning and that growth mindset because it will be a competitive edge for you in life and being that person that you're meant to be. It's an edge. D stands for discipline. I define this by just doing the right thing. And that's a simple definition, but I think that's what it comes down to, the discipline of doing the right thing. So here in spring training, which is pretty cool, by the way, each one of these major league teams, we have about 250 kids that come into the minor leagues. 250 kids to fill nine different affiliate teams, nine different minor league teams. And these guys, I'm telling you, if you took their jerseys off and you took the big league guys' jerseys off, you wouldn't know the difference just from their talent. From their talent, many of these minor leaguers throw just as hard, run just as fast, hit the ball just as far, if not further, but they're in the minor leagues. You, you can't, because the talent's there, but what's the difference? One's consistency, and two, we can trust them. So, spring training starts up, and we'll invite a few of these kids in for Major League Camp. And big, being invited to, to be with the big leaguers all spring training, it's a big deal. And I call each of the guys, this is their first time, I bring them into a separate room, and I say, guys, I think it's only fair that you get to hear what the expectations are, what we're expecting of you, how you can make this a really good experience, because the odds, you guys really aren't ready for the big leagues yet, but you're so close, so close. And make the most of your time here, and you might make that as a step towards your dream of being in the major leagues and define all those odds. But here's what we need you to do. Get here early. Get here early and stay late. Most of these guys aren't married yet, so I can say that with a clear conscience. Get your butt here early. Get to work. Everything in between. Work, 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 work. Work so hard that you're making some of the veteran guys look bad to where they call you out. And when they do, you keep the throttle down because you're going to get better and they're going to get better from trying to catch you. You just work. We're going to be watching that. Everything, always keeping your antenna up to learn and to listen and listen and watch the guys who've had a lot of success. Emulate some of the things they're doing. And after that, when you walk out of these doors, do not embarrass us. You're wearing the brand. Even though you might be an A-ball level player, which is at the very lowest rank, if you are here with us, you're wearing our brand and you're representing us. Do not embarrass us. Don't embarrass your name. Don't embarrass your family. Just stay the course and, and, and do the right thing and get back here and work. That should be your focus. So they all high five and they're all excited when they leave the room and I encourage them, tell them they're really close to their dream, keep going. And so as they leave, I, I know the next day, there they go, they show up really early and, and they stay really late and they're working. Day three, day four, maybe not so early, Day six or seven, all of a sudden, I noticed a lot of them are wearing golf gear and they're heading out before they get their work done. Day 10, somebody actually rolls in late and I have to send them back to the minor leagues. Day 14, the Holiday Inn calls me and tells me that room 242 is making so much noise at three o'clock in the morning, they're keeping the whole floor up and there's a strange smell coming out of it. Day 21, I get a call from Jupiter Police and I wanna tell you, these aren't bad kids. These are really, really good kids, but what happened? 
They're not ready. They're not ready to take those pressures because part of this is us understanding we need to trust you to do the right thing. The discipline of doing the right thing. When, when we head to Miami for a weekend series or when we go to New York City, are you going to be able to handle it? Keeping your throttle down on doing the right thing. And inside, I think we all know what that looks like. And I want to tell you this. I want to give you this warning. The right thing is very seldom the easy thing. But once you get your eyes back on what is that vision, who is it that you want to be? What are the things that you want to accomplish? And as we put our eyes on that vision, I, I think we should then match up this step that I'm about to take. Is that taking me towards that goal or is it taking me away? If I got caught, what I'm doing right now, is that taking me towards the goal I want to be or is it taking me away from it? And the discipline of doing the right thing, even when it's not the easy thing, is a competitive edge of getting you to that spot. G runs a hand in hand with the discipline. And to me, it's grit. Great book by Angela Duckworth called Grit. And, and it's basically taken this idea of there's an internal toughness and there's a fight in high level achievers. It's, it's taken that, what is, it, what is that drive? Yeah, there's, there's repetition. Yes, there's talent that's involved in high level achievers. But this one thing that seems to be really measurable is that toughness and that fight to go out and do the right thing. That toughness to, to stick your nose in and just fight for what you want, fight for what you think is right. As I look at leaders that I want to follow, I think of a book by Jim Collins called Good to Great, and it talks about these, these level five leaders that take their company to a completely different level. For those of you interested in the business world, it's a great book to read because it shows you that, that there's this there's this mixture of toughness and humility, and I don't know exactly how else to say it. A great book by a guy named Patrick Lencioni called The Ideal Team Player puts it this way. He says, humble, hungry, and smart. That's, that, that defines that toughness that people want to follow. Humble, hungry, and smart. The humility to know that you haven't had it all figured out. The hunger to get in and fight and the smarts, yes, educationally, but also emotional intelligence to understand people. The next letter is E, and that stands for energy. And I think this is something that we all, if there's one thing we could probably all do today a little different, I think this is the one. I really do. I think this is something that we can control. I think it's something that we can change. And when I talk to my coaching staff, this is a non-negotiable. Every single day we have to bring a level of energy. I actually think it's like a flywheel. I think it first comes with enthusiasm, which is like a passion for what you're getting ready to do. There's an enthusiasm, and then you mix in some encouragement, and then that turns into energy, and that flywheel just starts to self-perpetuate, right? And, and there, there are these days, right, when it's gonna be really hard. There, there are people in this room right now going through stuff that I can't even fathom. I don't even know, and you don't even know how you're going to take the next step, let alone to be energetic and enthusiastic. Life is hard, and I just want to tell you that I've seen some people navigate through some really, really tough things in life, and they have convinced themselves that it's not the circumstances that's going to define them, it's their responses. And those people show up with this energy and this enthusiasm, and on those really, really hard days, what they do then? They bring encouragement to somebody else. That's one of my favorite things about baseball. You see these guys, they look like Greek gods. I mean, they're strong, they're jacked, 
They've got smoking hot wives too. By the world standards, they have everything. But I know as I watch him, man, something's wrong with this guy. And even that guy, the Greek God, I'll go over and just sprinkle a little encouragement. Watch him light up like a Christmas tree. Watch him. And you've been listening to Mike Matheny talking to students at Oxbridge Academy in Palm Beach, Florida. Pick up his book, The Matheny Manifesto, a young manager's old school views on success in sports and life. More of Mike's speech, his story, here on Our American Stories. back with our American stories in the final portion of Major League Manager Mike Matheny's remarkable speech to the students of the Oxbridge Academy in Palm Beach, Florida. Mike is sharing how to have a competitive edge through the acronym EDGES, and we return to him on the E for energy. I love how General Colin Powell, Army General, said this. He says, perpetual optimism is a force multiplier. Perpetual optimism is a force multiplier, and I know this is true because I've seen the opposite. That perpetual pessimism, and I think you guys all know this, those people that come around and they've just got this negativity to them, right? It's just this dark cloud of doom and gloom. In baseball, we call them Eeyore. Was, is that a thing anymore? Eeyore, Winnie the Pooh, man, I, you guys don't even know that. You're missing out. Winnie the Pooh had this little donkey and he would slough around, right? Always just woes me and the world is just out to get me. We get Eeyores in our clubhouse. And here's what we do, we gotta, we gotta identify them, then we start teaching them. First of all, we tell them, you're an Eeyore. You're dragging people down, man. When you walk in, you are bringing a dark cloud into our clubhouse. You're bringing a dark cloud into every conversation you're starting. What do those dark clouds look like? They look like gossip. They look like overall negativism. They look like prejudice. They look like hatred. And I think we need to surround ourselves with some truth tellers. If you are fortunate, you have one person, when you're away from all the cool group, when you're away from having to put on your phony face, and you can be real with somebody, you are really fortunate if you've got one person you can be real with. And get up and say, is that me? Am, 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 I, am I the dark cloud? Because if they're honest with you, they're gonna point out to you, because I wanna tell you this, guys, your friends matter. I believe your friends will make you or break you. If you wanna see what you're gonna look like in five years, who you're gonna be like, look at your closest friends. Is that where you wanna be? But if you have some truth tellers in your life and they say, listen, man, that is you, or hey, you know what, when we're sitting around at lunch, it is way too much gossip about other people. Because all that brings is more negativism into your life. I'm going to tell you, you're bringing yourself down. You don't even realize it. But those people that make that conscious decision to be a light, that's what they are. It's light in this dark world where you can see when they walk in, there's something different about them. What is it? There's something different. And I think it's a choice we have despite our circumstances. Choose. Choose to make that, that choice to be a light. One friend told me like this. 
There are some people that light up a room when they walk in, and there are some people that light up a room when they walk out. It's brilliant. It's brilliant. And I think you guys need to truly... Hey, this, this room better not light up when I leave. That's all I got to say. But it's true. And I think, once again, we just have to ask some truth-tellers in our life to, to let us know which one are we. I'm almost done, and you guys have been incredibly patient. But this last one is really, it's the glue, it's the mortar that holds all the rest of them together. And if I get a chance to get back in the dugout and manage another team in the major leagues, this is the first thing that I've got to figure out with our staff how to build. If we are going to win, if we are going to be a championship team, we have to figure out how to do this. And it's this. Selflessly serve others. Selflessly serve others. And I know that was a huge buildup to something that might sound really lame. But I want to tell you, when you get this one right, watch out. When you get this one right, watch out. Because you know why? Because it is radically different than anything else going on out there. It is radically different in a world that's spending billions of dollars every day marketing and advertising that are telling you and that are telling me that success looks like this. Get all you can for as long as you can so you can go sit on your can. That's what they're telling us. That's what they're telling you. It's just to go scratch, claw, kick, climb. It doesn't matter about anybody else. You take care of you, number one, take care of you. You just climb the ladder, keep climbing, you keep gathering toys and stuff, and don't worry about the people. I want to challenge you. There are volumes, volumes of case studies of this. And this is people who, who the world would say were the most successful and have so much stuff. They've got all the things, but in the meanwhile, they ignored all the people just stepping on whoever they had to to get that next, that next position, that next job, that next company. Whatever they had to do, and I want you to look at so many of those and what happens in the end. And at the end of the end, I want to tell you, there's a whole lot of this. There's a whole lot of loneliness. There's a whole lot of despair. There's a whole lot of sadness. And I just want to tell you guys that when we change, when we change that perspective to where it's not just about me, Think about any relationship that's important in your life right now. I want to tell you, every single one of them would be better. As I look at myself, because I don't get this right all the time, but the times I do, I want to tell you, when I get this right, the relationships around me flourish. And they grow. And they're strong. And the teams that we have, they truly care about each other. In the baseball world, I see this done right from teams, from players who've had an experience to them. And so you take a really good player who's probably at the end of his career and some young prospects on the way that everybody's saying the best thing ever. And that veteran will take that young player, the ones that get this right, they'll take that young player and they'll share everything they have with them. All the good stuff. Not holding anything back. Tell them the secrets of the trade. Tell them all the tricks. Help them. Guide them. Figure out how to make them better. And why would they do that when they're getting ready to steal their job? There's a couple reasons. One is somebody did that for them. Secondly, they know to be on a winning team, there needs to be that. 
And you know what the third thing is? I call it the miracle of reciprocity. And I can't explain it, but as we give, if we give of ourself and our stuff, there is some miraculous way that comes back to us. I can't explain it, but the really good players have seen it. And when you get into that atmosphere, man, that's all you want to be around. You can't wait to show up to school each day. You can't wait to show up to the locker room or into the classroom because you know there are people around there that care about you. It's a difference maker. And I want to tell you, most of those guys have also seen that that when they make those sacrifices, they turn around, if they keep focusing, and they fight those internal desires, to this to be about me, and they serve people, they turn around and the stuff's there. But they're doing it with people. They've made an impact. And that's probably the word I want you guys to remember most. Impact. Jackie Robinson's one of my heroes. And for those who don't know who Jackie Robinson is, he, he broke the color barrier in baseball, incredibly brave man. But he said it this way. And, and if you remember anything, remember this. A life is unimportant outside of the impact that it has on other lives. Tell it to you again. You need to go look it up. A life is unimportant outside of the impact that it has on other lives. It's the why. It's the why we go and we educate. It's not so we can grow our head too big. It's so that we can, we learn and so we can serve others better. It's why we go and we, we have the discipline of doing the right thing. It's, it's because we want to do that right for other people. It's why we, we, we make those tough decisions. It's why we bring energy every single day to wherever we are. It's, it's to influence and impact other people. And when you get that why right, and you line it up with these dreams that you have. And I want to encourage you, like I did right from the beginning. Dream big. And when the foolish people in their bright red suits come up and try and shoot you down, keep your eyes focused on the things that you can control. Keep your eyes on the things that you know that, that you're going to go out and commit to do and that you're not going to get right all the time, but as you focus on, on, on taking just one step in some of these areas, on the things that you can control in your life, you know doing it for the right reasons that you're going to make an impact on somebody's life. And when you do that, I'm going to tell you, I'm going to be bold enough to stand here and tell you we have the opportunity to change this world. Don't ever let anybody talk you out of that. And at the end of the end, you'll look back and realize you made the most of what you've got. You realize that you have made, made good on that commitment to being the best version of you that you can be. And with that, there's no regrets. And that's a good way to live life. All right, guys, thank you very much. And you've been listening to Mike Matheny and his story and moreover his advice to young people at the Oxbridge Academy in Palm Beach. And periodically we play these speeches because, well, they're just good. And they're good to listen to and to try to apply to your own life. And if you've heard some good ones or have some good ones in mind, send them to ouramericannetwork.org. We play them possibly once every week or two. Uh, we don't do too many of them, but when they're right, we do it. And by the way, to learn more about this extraordinary leader, pick up his book, The Matheny Manifesto, a young manager's old school views on success in sports and life. And if you're interested in learning about speaking opportunities for Mike, 
visit MikeMathini.com. That's MikeMathini.com. And so much wisdom there, but what he said about discipline and doing the right thing and looking at those minor league players and those major league players and the difference being consistency, getting up every day and doing it, not getting up early for a couple of weeks and then going right back into your old habits. Consistency and trust. Don't embarrass us when you walk out that door. And those are the two marks of winners in the end. It's not just your talent. It's your discipline. Mike Matheny's story here on Our American Stories. This is Our American Stories, and we talk about everything here on this show, from the arts to sports, from history to business, and everything in between. And we love hearing your stories. Send them to OurAmericanNetwork.org, and we'll take a few of them, take many of them if possible, and turn them into stories right here on the show and put them up on the satellite so you can hear them too. Also, to hear all of our material and our best each week, our five best stories each week, go to OurAmericanNetwork.org and sign up for our free newsletter. That's OurAmericanNetwork.org. And send the link to friends. What we're doing here is special. I think you know it. Share it with friends. And anywhere you can, talk up what we're doing. We appreciate it. And so, too, does your station. And now it's time for the McClellan Files, where we go deep inside the life of Bob McClellan, someone that you don't know, but whose life and whose voice you're certain to be captivated by. And their dealings with... While watching a movie with my wife in the family room one evening, we were interrupted by our 16-year-old son, Tommy, who walked in and sat down with us. Politely, he said he had something important he wanted to discuss with us. As I turned off the TV, I quickly imagined all the possibilities of something terrible, disastrous, or difficult that could force a 16-year-old boy to sit down to talk with his parents about anything important. My wife, with her eyes wide open, sat silently while we all got settled in to hear what he had to say. I could not remember his approaching us like this before, and my expectations, coupled with my imagination, made me feel very uncomfortable. He began to tell us about a friend whose cousin attended the New Mexico Military Institute in Roswell, New Mexico for high school. That cousin is now a captain in the Green Berets and is teaching math at West Point. Tommy was very impressed by that and said he wanted to go there for the remaining two years of high school. He talked about the academic standing of the school, the numerous activities that were available, and the challenges he felt the school would present him. As he spoke, I was still unprepared for the ending of his story. Calmly and ever so smoothly, he discussed his desire to attend such a school and pursue a college education that no doubt had a military career as its ultimate destination. His mother countered with a gentle return to reason when she said, you're going to a fine private high school here in the Bay Area. Why would you want to leave all of your friends? More straightforward questions came from me like, are you unhappy? What are you on drugs? He said he was prepared to leave his friends as he would make new ones at the school. And though it was a military school, he was not enlisting 
and would still be a high school student. He returned to talking about the courses and activities offered by the school and its academic reputation. He thought the discipline and focus would help him be more successful. It was obvious he had done his homework, and it was evidence of how seriously he took this idea of leaving home, traveling and living at the school, and taking on a rigorous academic and physical regimen at 16 years of age. Young though he may be, he had reached a fork in the road in his life that his mother and myself didn't see. We asked, why would he want to be going to a military institute that sat out in the middle of the New Mexican desert? It was their reputation, he said. In their one-year cadet prep program, 97% go on to one of the military academies. Out of a total of 900 students, 90 went on to the military academies. He thought that by doing well at NMI, he could pick any college he wanted to attend and after graduation from college, become an officer. I began to suspect that he was bored living under the shady trees amidst a wealthy suburb south of San Francisco. A bedroom community offers little excitement, punching a time clock, working at a retail store, or hanging around with your friends, playing with your phone while living at home. is a lot less adventurous and exciting than traveling around the different places living within a community where 30% of the student body is international, 100% are former military, and meeting the many challenges that the military presents. We reminded him that home and community are important for his development. They are nourishing, sustaining, and necessary foundations for his life. But, like bread, they can often become stale. It wasn't love or nourishment that was missing. He just needed more room to grow. Finally, I just had to get to the point. I asked him, what's this all about? I said, I got no problem with the military, but why not do ROTC in college? If you want to go in the military, why do you need to go down there and do this? It was a moment of silence and a calm, self-assured demeanor. He looked at me and without any doubt or hesitancy in his voice, he said, Dad, I am not going to go to Stanford Business School, and I am not going to go to Harvard, and I am not going to spend the rest of my life working in an office. I want to be a captain in the Green Berets. I was speechless. There was nothing more I could say. And at that point, I was done. I was sold. He said he wanted to be an officer in the Green Berets, work in special operations, and be fluent in Arabic. He wanted to be a leader and not a follower. He had heard from his friend's cousin that these men don't need to find themselves. They do that every time they're standing in a doorway, getting ready to jump out of a plane. I asked him, are you prepared to jump out of a perfectly good airplane over Nigeria? His response was a simple yes. I could see the look in his eyes were infused with his youthful imagination and romanticism. But I knew he meant it. I understood how he felt. And though I thought it was a little early, I reminded myself that after all, it's just high school. He's not going off to war. I knew too that regardless of how far down this path he goes, he will benefit from making this decision and will learn a lot about himself in the process. This was his decision. He looked into his own incipient life and realized that he needed to find a different path to take him to a different place. He didn't know where that place was located, but his imagination convinced him that it existed. He just had to find it. 
And when we come back, more of this terrific story from Bob McClellan. By the way, go to the McClellan Files at OurAmericanNetwork.org and you can hear all that Bob does. What a terrific storyteller. And by the way, if you have a storyteller in your town that you know can just, well, hop out stories, send his or her information to us at OurAmericanNetwork.org because we know there are great storytellers all over this great country. More of the McClellan Files after these messages. And this is Our American Stories. And we pick up where we last left off with the McClellan Files. A young man, a boy, having a dream in his head, a vision in his head of leading a team overseas in the Green Beret and making that next important move to go to military school. Let's pick up where we last left off. As a parent, I learned eventually I could not really direct my children's lives anymore. Oh yeah, I could influence or coerce them. But I was no longer the director. In this conversation with him that night, I realized I'd become a spectator. I always believed as a father that the best I could do was to prepare my children to set their direction in life and be ready to live with the success or failure of their choices. Now, I would have to honor that belief. Consequences exist in the world of adults while children are protected from them. Families, like ours, create barriers and boundaries and walls trying to keep out the grimmer and grimier aspects of society. But to do that, we risk becoming imprisoned inside the walls, holding on to the illusion that we are safe and in control. We sent our children to private schools, put alarm systems in our house, and were careful about who we invited into our home. But still, we know that no one is safe. We pick their friends, pick their school, and where they can go, But at some point, we can no longer be there to make their decisions or supervise every activity, place, or person that comes into their life. The point has to come where either I release him or he just jerks his hand out of mine. Troubles like drugs, teen suicides, mental illness, or just being lost living at home with mom and dad have permeated through the porous walls of his school. He sees some of his peers already making these dangers a lifestyle and it is one of the reasons why he wants to leave. These dangers may be hidden among the many tomorrows of his future. It was becoming apparent to me that Tommy is not just running to someplace, but running away from someplace. I thought my wife and I would make all of his decisions, but at some point I know we won't be there to help him. To manage these serious difficulties, he needs many attributes to get him through, and resourcefulness sits at the top of that list. Resourcefulness is an attribute that is part of the military bedrock. Planning for the unexpected, adapting to fluid situations, and working with limited resources are integral parts of military training. Our natural instinct at home is to nurture our children. It is our duty as parents, but being nurturing is not preparing them to be self-sufficient and independent. Eventually, the breast runs dry and is incapable of providing nourishment for a man. 
The appetite becomes too large when your son is six feet tall and shaving. Without realizing it, Tommy's decision is one that will help him develop the ability to take care of himself. Wow, what a concept. Choosing for oneself which side of the wall is right for you is a decision we all have to make. Tommy chose the risk of being on the outside rather than being inside in the safety of the center. His confidence impressed me as evidence of both his desire for independence and self-reliance. Regardless of the outcome, this is his choice. If he gets down there and doesn't like taking seven classes a day and training in 100 degree heat in the desert, then that's just too bad as far as I'm concerned. I am sure this experience will teach him to be very selective about what he chooses to do in the future. He will certainly learn his limitations down there as well as his capabilities. Video games and drugs and alcohol hold no allure or excitement for him. At NMI, he is not allowed to even have a smartphone and internet access is controlled by the school. He leaves all those attachments and appendages here at home. There is no use for them at the school. They will write letters instead and carry a flip phone. The school seems to have a policy that I embrace. Less is more. I told him that the door only swings one way here and other than leave or come home on vacations, don't come back until you finish. He said, no problem, Dad. I told all my children when they turn 18, three doors will appear in their life. The door to college, the door to the military, and the front door. And they're gonna go out of one of those three doors, for sure. And Tommy, he's the last to go. Afterwards, my wife discussed the conversation with me, and she asked what I thought was driving his decision. My answer to her question was that he was bored. A high school campus full of kids that all grew up together becomes a very small world. Church for teenagers every Sunday, boy, that gets routine real fast. Faith eventually fades away. Teachers telling him all day what he's to believe doesn't challenge him to think for himself. He doesn't learn to solve real problems but rather digital or paper ones. In the novel All Quiet on the Western Front, Paul Bomber exclaims to his former teacher after returning home on leave from the front lines in World War I, you never taught us anything really useful, like how to light a match in the wind or make a fire out of wet wood. Sometimes it is the practical and not the theoretical education that is important. He wants to take classes to fly a plane, experience scuba diving and rappel out of a helicopter, run an obstacle course and learn about teamwork from teachers who spent many years in the military. He's not interested in being a digital cartoon characterization action figure. He wants to be a real one. He wants to be a Green Beret no less. Those ideas and dreams lie far out in the future. Though they may never materialize, I am comforted that he has some starting point in his life. These are questions his mother and I have discussed with him since that night. The questions that he could not provide answers for, he told us he would find them when he gets there. It was so apparent to me that my son was becoming someone else. I could see his hunger for adventure and challenge was contained in my most favorite quote of all of literature, Shakespeare's play, the Taming of the Shrew. It introduces its hero, Petruchio, who, while riding into Padua, is greeted by a friend from his hometown, who asks, Oh, hail Petruchio, 
What winds blow thee to Padua? He answers, Such winds that scatter young men through the world to seek their fortune farther from home where small experience grows. These are the words that help me understand my son's decision. I worry about his mother and how she's feeling about the prospect of her son leaving home at 16. She was unprepared and not happy about a separation so soon from Tommy. Our other son, Bobby, had left for college a year earlier, and she thought she would have Tommy for two more years. The idea of spending 20 years as a mother and then watching them leave home is a painful experience for any mom. But his desire was so credible and so sincere that she could only say yes. She said she could not be so selfish as to stand in the way of her son seeking to make his life matter at 16. She always said that she put her children first. Her commitment to that devotion puts her into the selfless position that how her children feel is more important than how she feels. So she is preparing herself for what will be one of the most difficult sacrifices she can make for her children. What a fine example of love that is. For me, I grew up in and served in the military as did most of my family. And though I will miss them, I accept the idea that life is a journey through a strange land and each obstacle that's overcome becomes a transition to the next place in life. This challenge will expand the margins of Tommy's life and test his capabilities. When we finally informed Tommy that he'd been accepted and that he could go, I had a sense that I would see a lot of Roswell, New Mexico over the next couple years. I think my wife will insist upon it. And what a terrific story, and as always, beautifully told and written by Bob McClellan. Go to the McClellan Files at Our American Network to hear all of his work. And by the way, again, if you know a storyteller in your town, in your city, in your community, and you know who they are, there are a few people who can just really write and tell a story. Send their names to us here at OurAmericanNetwork.org. That's OurAmericanNetwork.org. And by the way, thanks to our proud sponsors of the show, MyPillow, and that's MyPillow.com to order their terrific pillows. And there's a 10-year warranty on these pillows. They're guaranteed not to go flat. They're 100% machine washable and dryable. And best of all, they're made right here in the United States in Minnesota. The founder, Mike Lindell, well, he's committed to having their operations in our country and in his hometown of Chaska, Minnesota. And by the way, my wife and I use them faithfully and fight over which is which. We often get confused and end up, well, just having arguments over who was whose. And now I'm actually, we got names on them. So that can't happen anymore. Hopefully. We'll see. That's MyPillow.com, MyPillow.com. And mention the word stories, but pull the stories word down in the menu bar. This is Our American Stories, The McClellan Files.
And we continue here with our American stories, and we love telling Christmas stories around Christmas season. And today we have one of our regular features, a story written by Stephen Rosiniak. This one is entitled An Angel in Therapeutic Shoes, a story from the time when young Stephen worked in a nursing home. Frances was always a sound sleeper, but every morning it was her internal clock that never failed to inform her that it was 6 a.m. She would immediately rise from her hospital bed and then quietly move past her sleeping roommate towards their shared bathroom. Within minutes, she would emerge, washed and ready for the rest of her day, wearing an old print house dress and those well-worn black therapeutic shoes that she needed to help her navigate the hallways. Her slightly longer than shoulder-length hair entirely gray now, except for a few black strands that simply refused to surrender to the passage of time, was pulled back tightly into a small bun on the back of her head. Although she was a resident of this nursing home, Frances behaved more like a self-appointed quasi-member of the staff. Sturdy and yet stooped, she somehow seemed to always be in a perpetual state of constant albeit slow motion, as she silently made it known daily that it was her duty to maintain the cleanliness and general good order of her domain, specifically the floor on which she resided, and most especially the combination dining day room. I was acutely aware of all this, mostly because, while Frances might have considered herself to be a member of this nursing home staff, in reality, I was. A teenager whose responsibilities included cleaning the very same halls and rooms in which Frances resided. While surveying and otherwise maintaining her realm, Frances had another equally important mission attending to the needs of her fellow residents. Whether delivering a needed tissue or a cup of ice water, returning a drop utensil to someone at dinner time, or pushing a geriatric patient's chair to and from any number of daytime activities, Frances could always be found faithfully serving each and every member of her floor family. But, It was the slow cadence of her softly sounding footsteps tapping on the white tiled floor that gave notice to all within listening distance that an angel in therapeutic shoes was close by, on duty, and as always, ready to serve those in need. While Frances was certainly a sociable soul, her communication with others, for the most part, tended to be wordless. Soft-spoken by nature, it was her omnipresent smile that silently shared whatever message she wished to convey. The truth is, Frances had little use for words. That is, until the day came when she did. I wasn't working that Thanksgiving night when Frances suffered a stroke. But a couple days later, When next I saw her, she was in the dining room, straightening out some of the chairs, attempting to persuade an unaligned table back into its assigned position. 
Moving now with a slight but noticeable limp, Francis was, nevertheless, back on duty. Her recovery, it appeared miraculous. But sadly, it wasn't. I went over to where she was and offered to help her realign the table. And as I did, I asked her how she was feeling. Francis looked up at me with the saddest expression that I had ever seen and attempted to voice a reply. Her words, they were incoherently mumbled. The stroke had stolen from her the ability to speak. I struggled to find something to say, except now I too was speechless. I moved the table back into its position and quickly left the room. Later, that same afternoon, I saw Francis sitting in the dining room next to a wall that was now adorned with Christmas decorations. Absently, when I asked her if she was excited about the coming holidays, Francis looked up at me and then pointed towards the Merry Christmas banner hanging on the wall, then to her mouth, and lastly, she pointed to my own. It took me a moment or two before the meaning of her message began to register. Francis wanted to be able to say the words, Merry Christmas, and she wanted to be able to say them in time for the holiday. Now, my youthful ignorance, well, it knew no bounds when I told her that I was going to help her to be able to do just that. From that moment forward, Every spare moment that I had, I would sit with Francis and together we would work. Me repeating those two special words over and over as she studied the movements of my mouth, attempting then to replicate the sounds herself. Quickly, word began to spread of what we were doing and soon my efforts had morphed into a group project. First the nurse's aides, and then the rest of the staff, everyone joining in to help make the special angel's Christmas wish come true. Four weeks later, on Christmas morning, when I arrived on the floor, there was Francis greeting the incoming staff with hugs, and of course, while uttering those two long fought for words, Merry Christmas. Throughout the day, a steady stream of visitors arrived to spend some time with their loved ones, and Frances was there to greet them all with her verbal gift. But admittedly, if it hadn't been Christmas, understanding her words might otherwise have been somewhat of a challenge. But after all, it was the holiday, and everyone understood the significance of those two mostly mumbled, but beautiful words. Before I left for home that afternoon, I stopped in to see Frances, and surprisingly, she didn't say a word. But then again, she didn't need to. Her hug and her smile and her tears silently said everything that I needed to know and everything that she needed to share. Frances never fully recovered from her stroke, and sadly, she suffered another a few months later, leaving it to me to maintain the cleanliness and general good order of her former domain. Specifically, the floor on which, for a while anyway, 
she once resided. It's been more years now than I care to mention. But around the holidays, I still remember the slow cadence of softly sounding footsteps tapping on white tiled floors and of an angel in therapeutic shoes, faithfully serving her floor family. Oh, how we could sure use a few more angels like Francis in our world today. So true, and that's Stephen Reseniak in recounting an experience, well, that still burns in his memory, and that's of Francis. And we spend a lot of time hearing from older people here on this show because we're not youth-obsessed, and we all know that those aren't our best years, our teens and our 20s. I sure hope they're not yours either. As we grow and we get wiser, and in this youth-obsessed culture, we say, no, thank you. We love kids. We love young people. But boy, do we love our old people. 65 years or older, 11,000 people a day in this country are turning 65. 11,000 and living longer than ever. And we're going to share so many of their stories here on Our American Stories. And we continue here with Our American Stories, and we tell stories of every kind here on the show, and sometimes every once in a while, some, some tough ones. And this one is homelessness, and it's something that, well, it's affecting many people in this country and many families. And we've all seen it on the street, folks, someone with a sign, someone asking us for a few bucks, and we've always had to wonder, is that money going to a drug habit? Is that really going to help that person? And we feel just horrible because that a person could be in that place. Well, there before the grace of God go I, is what we think. And then we move on. Well, one person decided not to move on and to find out the real wide range of homelessness because it's more than that person on the street. And his name is Mark Horvath. And he's experienced the highs and lows of the American dream from a successful career in TV to barely surviving homeless and addicted on Hollywood Boulevard. But he found his voice again when he founded the Invisible People Project and hit the streets armed with a digital camera and a smartphone to talk to homeless people about their lives. Today, he's the online voice of the homeless, and he's bringing their stories to millions on Twitter, Facebook, and YouTube. Today, Mark's hearing from Josiah and his wife, Trisha. Here's Mark. Josiah and Trisha, we're here in Seattle at Tent City 3. Tell me about it. Um, okay. Oh, yeah. Okay. Um, well, we came here from Alaska and we had originally thought that we were going to stay in a hotel for about like a week. And, um, sorry, we're checking on a two year old. Uh, yeah. anyway, so we thought we were going to stay in a hotel for about a week. It'd be easy to get an apartment. It did not work out that way at all. And so I previously had come down a few months before that because I had a, a drug addiction. I came down here to get some treatment and, uh, 
I remember hearing that they had these great family shelters that's super easy to get into. We'd have no problem with that. So that was my theory I went on. And it was not like that at all. We came down here, we had our two-year-old. Um, we called a couple of the shelters. They called us to go down to one of the family shelters and when we got there at like eight o'clock at night, they said it was the wrong family. <laughs> so we couldn't stay. Um, we were told that if we separated, that we could easily be sheltered. So we would have to split up so one of us could take our child and that the other person could get sheltered somewhere else. That didn't work for us either since we're married and we have a happy marriage. We didn't want to split up. Um, we finally got to Tent City because they took us and they took they took children. Although when we got here, he was the only child. Um, we went from one child to about, I think 10 kids at one point. Something like that, yeah. We had like 10 kids here. So he was super happy playing with all the kids. Um, We've been here a little over a year. I think maybe like a year and... 14 months, something like that. 14 months, something like that. Um, since we've been in Tent City, my husband got a job. He has a full-time job. We've been saving money to get an apartment. Uh, housing absolutely is horrible trying, for us trying to get. Um, we've called several different agencies. Either they won't take us because we're not currently in an addiction or we are not disabled enough to qualify for their benefits. Um, my husband had a traumatic brain injury and when we called one of the agencies and they were asking us all these questions about, you know, do you have an addiction? Are you in recovery? Do you use anyone have a disability? And we're going over all of this and she said that we didn't score high enough right. <laughs> to get any kind of attention, but we could hang up and try and call again and start all over again. And she told us to lie. And I was like, you want us to lie about this. Like, I felt really uncomfortable about that. If you lie and then you get all these benefits, what happens when the lie is found out? You know, like that just really sat really ill with me. Or when I mean, they said that if we were still currently in our addiction that we could easily get housing because we have a child. It makes no sense that you have two people that have been clean. Right, you're two years clean now. Yes, well, like a year and a half. Well, a year and a half. A year and a half. A year and a half. But still, like a year and a half clean and we don't qualify for housing, but somebody who is shooting up on the side of the road, they get housing and they don't have any kids, but then they lose their housing in a few months. Right. It's infuriating, actually. Right. Um, I'm sorry. I'm sorry Homeless Services makes it so hard for people to get help. It does. It's, it's crazy. It's absolutely crazy. So we're in a tent city. Mm -hmm. You guys are looking over because your kid's over there. Yeah. And. I love tent cities because I'm an old hippie and this is a self-governed mm -hmm. place where it's community so your kid's safe. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. But there's homeless people here. My goodness, how could you let your kid run around homeless people? I know. Maybe it's because we're homeless ourselves. I don't know. Well, <laughs> well we know these homeless people. Yes. Right. I mean, and that's, that's the biggest part about uh, the public's uh, thought of what a homeless person is they go downtown and they look at the people shooting up on the side of the road and that's what they that's what they're thinking oh all homeless people are like this right it's not the truth i have met numerous amounts of homeless people who are super nice who are super respectful all they're trying to do is get out of the rut and it's just harder than anyone can imagine sometimes right. You know, I think people always think that when they see someone on the street and they have a sign that says they're hungry and they're homeless and they're dirty. I get infuriated when I see people with their signs on the street. There are too many people that will give you a shower, that will give you food. What you're asking 
when people are like that, they're probably either drunk or high and they can't get into a shelter. Yeah. Most of the programs are trying to survive. Yeah, they're trying to survive. But they is, they think that all homeless people are like that. Right. And they're and not. It's a small percentage. It is a very small percentage of the people that are like that. The most homeless people, you no, don't even no. know they're homeless. No. Yeah. And that's what's so amazing about 10 City 3 and the other 10 cities, sanctioned 10 cities here, is, I mean, it's as clean as it can be. Mm -hmm. It's amazing that it's in a church parking lot. Thank God for this church that it's allowing. Oh, absolutely. I wish more churches would. Mm -hmm. um, tell me about 10 City 3, since we're talking about it. Let's see. It's... We have to be, you have to be sober to be here. Sobriety is required. We have a code of conduct. It's a strict code of conduct. There's no drinking, there's no drugs, there's no violence. Um, you can't have any weapons in here. You can't have a knife that's bigger than three and a half inches. Um, if somebody wants to come in here to stay here, that's, that's great, that's awesome. You have to have a valid driver's license or an ID card or a passport. It's just gotta be a government issued ID. And then they run a background check for sex offenders not just in the city, but for nationally as well. And we do that to protect ourselves as well as the kids. You know, that just makes everybody safer. There are some shelters that don't check for that. There's a lot of shelters that just let you in without an ID or any kind of a background check because everybody needs shelter. But just here at this one, we raise the bar a little bit. You, you have to work to be here. Um, you don't have to pay to live here, but participation's required. We have someone who runs the desk. We have an executive committee that's made up of five people. People are, there's 24 hour security. You have to patrol the inside of the, the tent city as well as the outside neighborhood. You so, guys patrol the outside neighborhood too? We do. Within a block radius of the camp, yeah. Yep. And we pick up. That is awesome. Yep. No, but we stop. We pick up trash. We pick up whatever's left behind. We make sure that we take care of the bus stops that we use. Um, we just keep an eye out for our neighbors. Like actually people always freak out if they have a tent city that comes in their neighborhood. But statistic wise, we make their crime go down because we keep an eye out for people right. trying to break in someone's car, break into someone's house. You know, we ask questions when we see weirdness. You know? People think that we're the weird, we're not the weird. We keep the weird out. Yeah. So, so um, what would you want people to know about homelessness that they probably don't know? A lot of people have a misunderstanding that if you're homeless and you have a family, that CPS needs to get involved and they need to take your kids. There is no reason that you can be homeless living in a shelter or in a tent city and you cannot be a great parent. Or it doesn't mean that your family has to get taken away from you. I am so glad you brought this up because you are spot on and CPS, Child Protective Services, mm -hmm. should only be called if there's abuse okay. and the Absolutely. child is in danger. Absolutely. Homelessness is not necessarily dangerous. It's not. Families should be kept together. Absolutely. You know, it's more beneficial for the family to be kept together, Absolutely. even if you're living in a tent, than Absolutely. separating the kids. Absolutely. My child's got a family of 70 people here. Right. Any one of these other 70 homeless people would take a bullet for my child in a heartbeat. I had, a, I had an accident recently and I had to go to the hospital. I broke my foot and I had to leave my son here with someone in our camp while he could come home from work. So there was a couple of hours where he was by himself. Never once did I even worry. Not once did not 10 people jump up to help him because they knew he knows them. Right. I have, it takes a village to raise a family and I have a village yeah. and I've got a great village. If you had three wishes, what would they be? Three wishes. The house. Nothing big. Just Nothing house. big. Just a tiny house. Yeah. Something that was ours. Or 
come up with better housing and so that we don't have to have tent cities or that there's people on or the street. More streets. affordable housing. More so affordable housing. Afford it. Affordable housing would be amazing. Those would be my three wishes. I'd have affordable housing, cool. a home for us, and a car. And you've been listening to Trisha and her husband, Josiah, and they have a two-year-old, and, well, this is the voice of the homeless. It's more than just that random person on the street, as she described, holding up a sign, dirty. And they're homeless, too, folks. They have families, those folks, too, but that's not everyone who's homeless, and we're here to bring voice to a a group of people that all are voiceless. And thanks to Mark Horvath for all that he's doing. And by the way, he's experienced it himself firsthand from the highs to the lows. And by the way, we've all been at highs and low points in our lives and but for some help, perhaps have been in precarious situations ourselves. You can learn more about Mark's 501c3. It's a nonprofit, Invisible People. You can see him on YouTube. Go to their website at invisiblepeople.tv and give to this good cause. The Invisible People Project, Mark Horvath's story, and today, Josiah and Trisha's story here on Our American Stories. For more, go to ouramericannetwork.org and sign up for the podcast.